Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar, and he has a great way to talk about Moses. Everybody remembers the character Moses? He talks about Moses as the man in the middle. The man in the middle. Think about it. Moses was born in the middle of Egypt. He was born in the what? The middle of a conflict between Pharaoh and the Egyptians uh, and, and versus Israel, right? He's born in the middle of this conflict. He's born in the middle of a genocide of all the male children. And he's spared because he's put in a basket and he's placed in the middle of the Nile River, right? He's found by a princess of Egypt and yet he is nursed and cared for by his own birth family. Okay, he's, he's born in a, he's raised in a royal house, but also in a slave Jewish house. Where, is he, where does he live? Right in the middle of this superpower in these slaves, right? He at one point sees an Egyptian taskmaster abusing a Hebrew slave. And where does he throw himself? In the middle between these two. Ends up killing this slave owner. And then he has to flee. So where does he go? Into the middle of the desert. There a burning bush calls him after years. A voice from the bush sends him back to Egypt where he's going to be the mouthpiece between Yahweh and Pharaoh. So where does he find himself again? In the middle. Right. So he's in the middle of Pharaoh and Yahweh. He finally leads the people out by walking in the of the sea on dry land, right? Leading the people out into the middle of the desert to get you guys are getting very good at this okay he spends time in the middle between Egypt and Israel right where he becomes the person that's the go-between now between Yahweh and the people right he goes to the mountain to talk to God and he brings the people words from the Lord so where does he find himself in the middle that's right and it's probably this last middle that is the most difficult for Moses Because if Moses is a person in the middle, Israel tends to be a people in resistance. They are always complaining. The text sometimes says murmuring, like grumbling, like if something weird happened right now and everybody sort of whispered to each other. Okay, that's the image of Israel. They're always whispering to each other about what's going on, talking about how things should be different. And pretty early on in Exodus, after they get out, they start complaining. In Exodus 14, they complain. In Exodus 16, they said they wish they had died. In Exodus 17, they beg for water. Then in Exodus 32, Moses spends a really lengthy time up on the mountain talking to God. And he comes down to find that they have become impatient. And they had gotten Aaron to build them this golden calf. And uh, they started to worship this golden calf instead of worshiping God. Moses comes down, gets really angry, breaks the tablets from the Lord. He actually, if you read the text, he melts down the golden idol, mixes it with water and forces the people to drink the water. So they taste the bitterness of their idols. And there on the mountain, God gives a great metaphor for Israel. He starts to call them, and this stays pretty true in the Old Testament, a stiff-necked people. A stiff-necked people. It's a great image because how many have you ever pulled a muscle in your neck? You slept wrong. You know what I mean? And somebody says your name. And when you go to turn, you have to like turn your whole body because it's like harder. That's what he says. Israel's like Israel's like a stiff neck people. They won't turn. 
They won't listen. They won't do what I want them to do. They, they, they're slow to turn their head. Now, before we get too judgmental of Israel, let's understand that this is a, a key time period in Israel's relationship with God. They didn't even know God's name of Yahweh until Moses gave it to them. They haven't been following God for that many generations. And the God that they were following led them to Egypt where they became slaves. Now, as soon as then Israel gets tired and they get hungry and hot and sweaty and they're walking around the desert, they're thinking, Moses, this guy does not know where he's going. Okay, they are hungry. They're thirsty. The parents have a new word for this, by the way. It's called hangry. Have you heard this word? Okay, like you're so hungry, you're angry. So we call it hangry. It's like a legit thing with children and adults, really, if we're honest. Okay, and so they're having trouble. See, see, there's this huge thing going on in the story. They're wondering what kind of God is Yahweh? Is he good? Can we trust Yahweh? When Yahweh goes up to the mountain, is he abandoning us? Maybe they feel that that's what it was like in Egypt. After all that slavery, the hunger, the thirst, hot and sweaty, threatened by nations, they're wondering what kind of God is this God? So when you think about it that way, those are some of the same questions that we have about God, right? And you can understand in the story why they have some of those questions. So let's, give, let's be a little bit patient with them at this moment. They're still getting to know God. And so there in, in, the, in Exodus 32, the golden calf, God comes down. He makes a new covenant with Israel. And he tells them this language is so important for our story for today that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So they continue to wander around in the desert. They're establishing the, the uh, priesthood. They're establishing the tabernacle. They're trying to figure stuff out. And then they finally, in the book of Numbers, get to the promised land. They're standing up by the Jordan. So they've kind of come around the promised land. And now they're getting ready to go in. And in Numbers 13 and 14, this whole conflict between Israel and God come to a head. God sends in 12 spies to scope out the land. They come back and they talk about, hey, those Canaanites, they are like really big. And there's a lot of them. And the cities are really strong. This is going to be really hard. And of the 12 spies, there's only two, Joshua and Caleb, that are confident that Israel can take this land. Everybody else is like, nope, let's go back to Egypt. Okay, let's, which is always funny, right? Like, you were slaves there. They like killed your children. And you're like, oh, I, I wish we could go back to Egypt. Isn't it funny how we do that with history? Sometimes the bad stuff, at least the bad stuff we knew, is better than the desert we don't. So Israel becomes, begins complaining again. And in Numbers 14, we read, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. This is right after the spot, report of the spies. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have, had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And then they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So this is a moment of mutiny. Like, let's get a new Moses. 
Let's rally. Let's, let's, let's go back. Let's, we don't have to do this. Let's not go in the promised land. Let's not stay here. <clears throat> let's go back to Egypt. This is a mutiny. And God is not pleased by it. Numbers 14, 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them. I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. So God's like, that's it. That's it. I'm going to make these people sick. I'm not helping them anymore. I'm not going to be there. Moses, I'm going to take you and a select few, and you're going to be the promised people. Right? I'm going to take a small group. We're going to make a new, we're just going to start this baby over. And uh, I'm just going to leave everybody in their sickness here in the wilderness. Everybody sees the moment, right? Israel is fed up with God. Now God is fed up with Israel. And Moses is where he always seems to find himself. In the middle. Right. So Moses prays. This is a sermon series on great prayers of the Bible. And here is our prayer. Now we're finally to it. Moses intercedes from the middle between God and his people. Numbers 14, starting in verse 13. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of the people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and a cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring his people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you promised, saying, you'll recognize these words, Moses is actually quoting God from the golden calf incident. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, for he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation. Please, Pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So Moses prays this prayer. He pleads with God. It's not that hard to follow this prayer. Okay, there's kind of a logical progression. He says, look, God, Egypt's going to see this. Like you brought that people out of Egypt. Egypt's going to see this and they're going to think that you're not strong. And they're going to tell the Canaanites and they're going to think you're not strong. And these other people are going to hear that you're not that strong, that you failed your people. What will this do for your fame? Then Moses quotes God's own promises back to him. I kind of like God, not only is Egypt well, not, like what's Egypt going to think? Yeah. What are the Canaanites going to think? But, but it's almost as if Moses is implying, Lord, what am I going to think if you do this? If you don't follow through on your promises. See, so we can follow the prayer. What we have trouble in the text following is the tone of the prayer. Right? At first glance, this prayer almost seems disingenuous or maybe manipulative. Sounds like God has this this little child's ego. 
You know, and Moses is appealing to it, trying to manipulate God in the right thing. Hey, God, you know what? What are other people going to think of you? What's Egypt going to think of you? Like, does God care that much about the opinion of the Egyptians? Right? Does God care that much about the opinion of these people? And then he sort of quotes God, almost like, hey, God, remember what you said. See, there, there, some people have read the prayer this way as sort of manipulative. As if Moses treats God like a, like a child. I mean, how petty is God that he cares that much about everybody else's opinion? But I don't think that's actually how you're supposed to read this. And I think if that was the way he was talking, I think God would have a different response than he did. Okay? No, I, I think when you read this a little clo- more closely, that Moses just refuses to believe that this is God's character. Lord, how in the world could you do that? That doesn't sound like you. That's not the you that I met at the bush. That's not the you that I've been getting to know in the wilderness here. I mean, a big part of this prayer is the same question that Israel's wrestling with right now, which is, what kind of God are you? Are you this petty? By the way, this is exactly how petty the Egyptian gods were. This is exactly how petty the Canaanite gods were. Are you really vengeful like this? Or are you true to your word? Moses can't believe that God is anything but good. And so he, he comes to God saying, like, what, what, what is this? What is your character really like? We should also note that, that there's an appeal here that, that doesn't come across at first glance, but is the appeal for safety of the people. In other words, if everybody starts to think that God is now no longer with Israel... They're going to see them as weak and they're going to start attacking them. Right. There's, a, there's actually a safety issue going on here, too. Like if Israel's really weak, then everybody's going to start trying to whoop them. All these other nations like that's not it's actually dangerous for Israel if God's going to abandon them in any way. It's also stunning to me that Moses cares so much about the people. They've been complaining the whole time. I mean, I wonder how often Moses was like, I'm going to turn this exodus around. Like, don't make me. I'm pulling it over. Okay? I, I wonder how often. And what did they say? The people actually said, let's get a leader to take us back to Egypt. They're not just rejecting Moses. Or, or they're not just rejecting God. They're actually rejecting Moses. They want to hire a new Moses. Moses, we don't trust you anymore either. We're going to hire somebody else to lead us back to Egypt. If I was Moses, I'm not sure I would be so charitable. Like, God, if you, if you, have, if you want to give these people pestilence, I have a couple ideas for you, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, are you taking notes? Are you taking suggestions at this point? I don't, like, it's pretty amazing that in the middle of this, Moses is being rejected. But, but he's actually working on behalf of the people. As always, he is the man in the What? The middle, and he does such a good job in this prayer of actually taking himself out of the equation and saying, what, is he, what, is, what does Moses care about in this prayer? He cares about the people. He cares about their safety. And he cares about God's reputation, but, but more than that, his glory, God's character. He wants to protect God's character and he wants to protect the people. And actually, he doesn't really care that much about his own reputation or what they're saying about him. 
And God responds to that prayer. He says he will not abandon the people. Indeed, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But he also says he will not clear the guilty. And so if you read through this story on your own, I'm skipping pieces. So I hope that you're going to go back and read this this week. But one of the things God says is this is the moment where God says all these people that are doubting that they can take the land, they're not going to get the land. Okay, this is where God says to Israel, okay, 40 years. Like, that's it. It's not going to be this generation that goes in the promised land. It's going to be the next generation that's going to have to go into the promised land. And so he, he is abounding in steadfast love. But, but he is also a God of character that can't just let the guilty do whatever they want. It's funny how we appeal to one or the other with God, but we have trouble with both. Like, I really want God to be merciful to me. And I really want God to punish my enemies. And I have trouble when God does both, and and I want to ask for one or the other, right? So this prayer from the middle works. The people are spared. They're still punished, but they are spared. And God responds to this prayer and starts to lead these people. And part of why God takes them into the wilderness for longer is to try to retrain their character. Like, okay. In, In fact, one of the prophets talk about... God putting Israel in the wilderness to woo them. Almost like this is a big date. Like, you know what? You guys don't know me. You don't trust me. Here we go. We're going to go out in the wilderness. We go on a little treat here. You're going to get to know me. So what can we learn from this little prayer of Moses? This is a great, a great example of what we might call intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is when you pray for somebody else. Or on behalf of somebody else. And um, it's something that we as Christians, I don't think, take seriously enough. The value of intercessory prayer. But, but I wonder if maybe Moses gives us a better way of talking about it that might help us do it more. I wonder if instead of calling it intercessory prayer, we could just talk about it as prayer from the middle. That there is this amazing thing that we can do as Christians where somebody else is going through something and we can be the middle between God and them. Like when they're so overwhelmed by something that they can barely pray, we can pray for them. We can be in the middle. And actually there's something really special about that because because not only are we following the example of Moses when we pray from the middle, but Jesus is also the man in the middle. The ultimate man in the middle. I mean, Jesus came to be the man in the middle. Came from heaven to earth. He's fully God and fully human. He's forever a mediator in the middle. He goes on a cross in the middle of two thieves, right? So when we get to be in the middle for somebody else, when we get to pray for somebody else, we are actually following in the example of Jesus being able to be between God and somebody else. And it's so valuable. It's such an honor that it's really shocking how many Christians don't take that seriously. Oh, we we send our thoughts and prayers. But do we actually pray for somebody? Like, what would happen? This happened to me in my ministry. I used to tell people I would pray for them. And then at one point I got convicted about that. I started actually praying. Like, like actually right there, we're going to, okay, let's pray. I've, I've done it with some of you. Somebody tells me something they want me to pray about, I just pray right there. What if we actually took seriously the idea 
that God responds to our prayers, that God listens to our prayers, that is honoring to God when we can pray for somebody else. Wouldn't we pray differently? But how much of our prayer life is, is not really about other people? It's really about us. Okay, we, we say joys and concerns here in church. We're going to do it in a few minutes. Do you write those down and pray for them later? Do you actually pray for those around you? Or are most of your prayers either about your meals or about yourself? And maybe, maybe that shows something about our selfishness, which Moses doesn't model at all, right? He's not concerned about himself. He's concerned about the glory of God and about other people. Maybe in our prayer life, it could actually help shape our faith life. And I think sometimes we don't pray to God for other people because we're scared that God won't answer the way we want him to. This is the other thing I've noticed. I think sometimes, sometimes we are concerned, like Moses is, about the character of God. Is God good or not good? That's a serious question that when we go through pain, when we go through suffering, when we look at COVID, when we look at our country, when we look at somebody going through cancer, when we go through all these different things, why won't my kid believe this? Where has my, ch- my children gone? All these concerns of our lives. The, the question is still the same question. What kind of God are you? Are you truly loving and, and compassionate and have steadfast love for me? And so here's what I think Christians sometimes do. And I know that I've done is I don't pray about stuff to protect myself from those questions. Because if I actually prayed about stuff, then if God didn't answer the way I wanted him to, I'd have to deal with some of my questions about the character of God. What if as Christians, we actually had the audacity to believe that God is powerful and loving. And so we pursued him in prayer for other people. What if we weren't so what if we didn't have to worry about ourselves because we trusted God? So we worried for somebody else. What if somebody else is really stiff necked? They can't turn. They can't listen to God. And so we get to pray in the middle for them. But I think often the fact that we don't pray for other people, that we won't stand in the middle for other people are actually a sign that we're the stiff necked ones. That we're selfish, that we don't actually want to submit to God. We don't actually want to wrestle with the character of God. And so I just won't pray. I'll pray about my cheese curls before I eat them. But I won't pray for other people because that could actually be scary for my faith. And what's worse is a lot of Christians say, well, I just have faith. I don't need to pray. God knows anyway. No, that's, that's not faith. That's a lack of faith. That's actually a lack of faith that you won't bring it before God. You don't trust him enough to do that. So maybe we are the stiff-necked people. And maybe if we actually learned to be in the middle for other people, then God would have a chance to reshape our character, to show us how trustworthy and steadfast his love is. So may you remember prayer from the middle And may you take it as a a serious honor that you get to be that for someone else. 